Electric cars is one of the big things that everyone's really talking about in the U.S. and everyone's excited in the residential market. Americans want electric cars and we're seeing a huge increase in the amount of electric cars that are being bought, that are being manufactured. Biden administration has a goal of 50% electric cars by 2030. Then what's normal if someone has an electric car and they charge at their home, they're going to want solar. That's just the natural equation. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. The podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar developer and consulting firm. You could learn more about us at www.renewenergy.com. That's R-E-N-E-U energy.com. We'll have information about our company on the notes of the podcast. I'm excited for this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast. This is one of the few times that I actually get interviewed by another podcast. The podcast that I'm getting interviewed by is the Great Solar Business Podcast. It's a podcast that's created by Nigel Morris. He's a 30 plus year solar veteran and he's based in Australia. And I focus on speaking about what the Australian solar market can learn from the U.S. solar market. This podcast interview was done about a year ago, but a lot of the same concepts still apply. Nigel Morris's Great Solar Business podcast provides a deep dive into what makes a great solar business, how to learn from the past and prepare for the future so that your businesses can thrive. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast. Let's get into it. Well, hello, solar friends, and welcome back to another episode of Great Solar Business. This week, we explore yet more secrets of great solar business and discuss the topic, USA Perspective on Australian Solar. As an avid podcast listener, I regularly tune in to hear other people's perspectives on solar. There's always something you can learn. I recently stumbled across a great podcast out of the US called Solar Mavericks. And what really struck me was the differences between the US market and the Australian market. There are many similarities, but also some stark differences between how our two countries are adopting solar and undoubtedly some lessons for all of us to learn. Never one to let an opportunity go by. I reached out to Benoit Thanjan, who hosts the show in between being the CEO and founder of Renew Energy. Benoit, welcome to Great Solar Business. Thank you, Nigel, for having me. I'm excited to be here and look forward to the conversation. And I appreciate all your thought leadership and your 30 years in the solar industry. And I enjoy your podcast as well. And I'm excited oh. you reached out to me. Oh, well, we're starting off on a great foot there, Benoit. Let's stroke the host's ego. You know how to do this. Well done. Well done. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so look, let's give our listeners an insight into who you are and what you do and who Renew Energy is. Give us a brief history. Tell us who you are and what you do. So Renew Energy is a company that I founded in 2012. We actually just celebrated our nine-year anniversary, which is amazing. And if you look at solar as dog years, like nine years is a very long time. Yes, um, it is. And you probably know better than most people about it, being 30 years in the industry. And it's just amazing as a business, like how much we have had to adapt because solar keeps changing. We're really trying to add value to our clients and we're a solar developer and consulting firm. We developed commercial, industrial and utility scale projects 
projects in the Northeast Atlantic of the U.S. We also help other developers with development as well, with originating land opportunities, understanding incentives, helping with interconnection and financial modeling. We also partner with developers on sourcing, financing, and consulting them with that. And then how we first started the business was we got involved in renewable energy credits. And I don't know how familiar people in Australia are with that. That's an incentive created by the state to incentivize the development of solar. It's very popular in the Northeast of the U.S. And they have a separate carve out for solar renewable energy credits. And just to give you an idea, like the price range for these credits could be between 30 U.S. dollars to 230 U.S. dollars, obviously per megawatt an hour. Yeah, we have similar schemes down here, but not at 230 bucks. That's good. Obviously, the higher the incentive, the more activity that creates. You have brokered about like $30 million in these renewable energy credit transactions. We help asset owners basically mint production into RECs and then sell it. And we do pricing and research. And then, as you mentioned, Nigel, I also have the Solar Maverick podcast which we have done now 106 episodes, the bi-weekly podcast about solar and entrepreneurship, where I interview different people in the industry and also talk about different topics. And then just briefly before I started Renew Energy, I was at Tesla Solar City and their project finance group, Solar EPC called Vanguard Energy Partners doing finance, and then a private equity fund called Ridgewood Renewable Power, where we invested not solar projects and renewable energy projects. Before that, I was at Deloitte and their energy group. So I have about like 12 to 14 years of experience in renewable energy. Right on. What a great and fascinating little history you've got there bouncing across various parts of the industry. The little that I know about US is so much of it's been about large scale. I'm going to have to bail you up and talk to you about large scale on a completely different topic sometime to hear some more about what you've learned there. (laughs) Great to have you on the show. Let's dive in for a sec because I'm going to focus mostly on the differences between Australia and the US to try and see where there are similarities and where there are really big differences so that we can try and learn some lessons from each other here. But the Australian solar market's dominated by low-priced residential and commercial sales. We have about 300,000 a year and we've had some large scale. In fact, it's really taken off over the last sort of four or five years particularly. Tell me, how does this compare to the US? You dominated by large scale still? What's happening in residential? Give us the landscape. So it's interesting because I think the U.S. is such a big country with 50 different states. And I think all types of solar is popular, like residential. Obviously, the large majority of the megawatts that are coming online is utility scale. I think there's about 2 million installations per year. When you talk about residential, commercial, industrial and utility scale projects, we're seeing in certain parts of the country more popularity towards residential solar. When you talk about like the West Coast, the North East and like Hawaii. That's mainly because these states have like high electricity costs, specifically like the west of the U.S. and Hawaii have also a high solar irradiance. So it makes good market for residential solar and also depends on like state level incentives. So you'll see a lot in the northeast. People are surprised it doesn't have as high solar irradiance, but they have high electricity costs and high state level incentives. You'll see more of the utility scale development in hotter parts of the country where land is cheaper. That like in Texas or Nevada, there's a lot of development in the South that's happening more and more. Usually like the state level incentives are lower, but it still makes economic sense. 
So it kind of varies. It's hard to say because different parts of the country have different schemes to promote it. There's also something called community solar, which is extremely popular in the U.S. and getting more and more popular as time goes on. Interesting. You raise a couple of really interesting points there so that I wanted to just dive into for a sec. So I see comments from U.S. solar installers on some of the groups and pages that I follow. And Australia has relatively expensive energy prices. You know, probably on average, most people pay close to 30 cents Australian per kilowatt hour now. How does that compare to the U.S.? That's a great point. The U.S., it's definitely a lot cheaper for a residential customer for their electricity. I would say the ranges that I've seen like in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic is like between 14 to 23 cents per kilowatt hour. But I could tell you like California is more expensive than that. And then Hawaii as well. Obviously, like being an island, which is similar to Australia, they have higher electricity costs and not as much centralized power. So a lot of things get imported into the island. And that's why solar has proliferated very big in Hawaii compared to other states. I've seen that actually. And what some of the technological challenges Hawaii has, very similar to the ones that we have here in Australia due to our, you know, high rates of energy prices, which creates a virtuous loop of people going, well, electricity is expensive. I'll buy solar. That changes the network behavior. Less people buy energy, so the price goes up more. So more people buy solar and we get end up in a virtuous loop of goodness and solar. So there's a big, fairly substantial gap in the energy pricing, which is kind of what I sense. And it's interesting to think what might happen as those rates inevitably change over time. If they do in the US, you'll potentially see things shifting the way they do in Australia. The other one I wanted to ask about, you mentioned there's a couple of million solar systems installed each year in the US. How's it going with batteries? What's the attachment, the typical attachment rate of batteries? So right now, I would say the attachment for batteries are relatively low when it comes to residential systems. You're seeing a lot of it in California and in Hawaii. California actually has a great state level incentive for batteries and customers are willing to pay more if they just purely want it for backup power. And like, for example, with Tesla, I know some people will buy multiple power walls just to have that battery backup just in case due to an outage, even though it's probably a lot cheaper to get a generator. But most of the U.S. doesn't really make economic sense. And then there hasn't been any real like state level incentive to get storage. But I think that's all going to change as time goes on. I think a lot of states are starting to think about coupling solar plus storage and then also what that incentive should be. And then also how that creates like liability to the grid going forward by having that customer having that in the future. So I think it's still very early in the process. But I think what we're seeing is that the price of batteries are going down substantially, specifically lithium ion uh, technology. And I think within two or three years, you're going to see pretty much every residential customer getting some sort of storage with it. Yeah, right. And one of the things I have learned about the US over the years is that one of the big challenges, you've got very disparate and variable regulations and rules and big rebates in some areas, disincentives and other sorts. I know there's a lot of variation in the market, but generally speaking, in Australia for history, there was no feed-in tariffs originally, of course. Then we moved to gross feed-in tariffs in a number of areas where you got paid for everything that you produced and just simply charged, you benefited from an incentivized feed-in tariff for just generation. But nationally now, I think without exception, we are on net feed-in tariffs where you basically can offset the energy that you would normally buy. So you're offsetting at 30 cents a kilowatt hour if you're self-consuming 
And then the export rates are netted off at a quite a low rate. Typically, you're getting five or six or eight cents for the energy that you're exporting. What happens in the US around metering and the export of solar energy? Yeah, so that's a great question. And you're right, like every state is different. I think what's happening when you're exporting the energy back to the grid, you're usually getting some wholesale credit to the electricity rate. Like give an example, in the state of New Jersey, that's where we're based actually. It's like a three and a half cent credit that you get. Mind you, you're paying like 12 to 14 cents for your electricity as a residential customer or even higher than that 15 cents. What solar companies have been doing is sizing either the residential or commercial industrial system where you potentially would only produce enough where it wouldn't be actually exported to the grid so that you wouldn't get that. It just doesn't make sense to invest that much to maximize the solar output when you're not getting paid commensurate rate for that. But I think over time, that's going to change. California has a time of use rates, which when you sell it back to the grid at a certain time, you get a higher rate, which I'm not that sure of because we don't do a lot in California, but I've heard about that. But correctly, obviously, if I'm rolling that certain utilities in certain states have put some extra charge if you export back into the grid, which was a big issue. It's interesting because it really depends on the utility in each jurisdiction, in each state. And there are multiple utilities or energy companies that are in that sort of service area that control the transmission and distribution. But primarily, like you get basically a wholesale rate for your export. It doesn't make any sense. As a leading authority in the solar industry, life gets very busy. In addition to traveling the world as a speaker and for my entrepreneurial ventures, I'm a son, friend, investor, and entrepreneur. And when it comes to delivering a great sounding show for my listeners, I choose Podcast Laundry. All I have to do is record and send and the rest is done. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, social media graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up your time to do more of what you you love, like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones, go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347-871-8273. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. Yeah, got it. It raises a bunch of interesting questions for me because to get the most out of your solar from an economic perspective, if you're, let's focus on residential for the moment, but to get the most out of your solar system economically, that would mean that you therefore need to be focused very hard on self-consumption. That has given rise to a dramatic increase in the use of really high quality monitoring solutions. Are you seeing consumers embracing monitoring solutions to help optimize their economics like we have in those applications? Yeah, monitoring is huge to be able to monetize and to understand the electricity usage and consumption because that's an important piece to it. And obviously the design of the system and the type that you're using to make sure before you get the solar system that you would have large exports into the grid. So definitely like the monitoring software plays a huge key to it. And I think in the future, when consumers are able to build more of a cash flow stream, that's more commensurate for providing reliability to the grid. I think yeah. the monitoring yeah, yeah, yeah. will be even more important, be more robust for the consumer than would be if it's just self-consumption. 
Yeah, we're seeing this demand grow over time. It also begs the question to me if I want to just be clear on some of these differences so that the focus on learning from each other. But am I right that like Australia, we have a very competitive solar industry. We have lots and lots of players. We also have a very, very competitive and rapidly changing utility network space, particularly the retail space. They're seeing profits being eroded because they're not selling as much energy because of the proliferation of solar. We're seeing wholesale prices being changed dramatically because of renewables. And so that causes confusion for customers because there's so many rules and regulations for installers to abide by depending on where they're installing. And for consumers, choosing the right energy plan is also a real challenge because like you were describing, there are lots of retail options. Tell me, is the competitive landscape in the US similar to us in that sense? Yeah, there's so much disruption that's happening in the industry. So you're right, like um, energy companies or utilities specifically are losing revenue because of renewables like solar that they would have had before. So they're adjusting to a new sort of business model. The solar industry, as Nigel likes to say, there's a lot of cowboys, but here, cow eats it's like, <laughs> in the same way, you know, a lot of people trying to get in the solar industry. There's a lot of competition. So it's how you differentiate yourself. There's a lot of people as well who don't have that much experience, but there's really like no barriers of entry for people to get in. So there are other ways that you have to differentiate yourself to be able to be competitive and everything is changing rapidly. So everyone's just adjusting. That's the change. It's never ever boring. There's always some challenge to deal with in this industry and I'm glad we're not alone there. In talking about the competition and I've watched this over the years and it is so challenging with all this constant change and constantly having to adapt and rules changing, retail deals changing, your economics changing. In some places you're encouraged to put solar in, in others there's rules that effectively block you from the market. But one of the things that we've managed to do, perhaps to our detriment, but certainly to the benefit of consumers is drive the price of solar down. In Australia you you can jump online and find a whole bunch of ads for solar at 30, 40 cents a watt installed in US dollars, which is just incredible. And I've been involved in a couple of studies over the years looking at the differences in solar installed prices around the world to try and unpick them and understand why are the costs different here to there and what can we learn from each other. Tell me, where's pricing? And again, I know it's huge variation, but typically what I hear is that solar prices in the US are still much higher than 30 or 40 cents US after rebates in Australia. Where are prices sitting at the moment and and in the US and assuming that I'm correct that they're still higher, why are they higher? It's definitely a lot higher. I would say for like the average system size, residential is like five kilowatts. That probably costs between three and five dollars per watt US dollar, which results into like 15 thousand to twenty five thousand dollar range. And that's like the cost before tax credits and incentives. So I don't know how familiar, but the big incentive that's actually driven the growth of solar in the US is the federal incentive called the investment tax credit. Yes. Like basically a 30% grant on the cost of the system would be cash to the person installing it. Now it's a tax credit. It's actually 26% this year and the new administration or the Biden administration is talking about actually extending that for a longer period of time than just the next few years, potentially like for another 10 years. It's interesting because when I hear the prices in Australia and other countries, it's just amazing to me like how it's that cheap. Don't worry. It's amazing to us as well. Don't worry. Sure. <laughs> but I think the big thing is really like the soft costs, the balance and system costs, which probably can 
add almost a dollar per watt to any installation or $6,000. That's related to like getting through permitting and the inspection process. So that requires solar installation time and money. And there's no real centralized permitting code for installation. So each state or county or municipality has their own rules. And then as well, the inspection process depends on the utility. The utility or energy company has to have someone specific from the utility company come out to inspect the project. Sometimes there are delays in even getting that person to come out and then you can't even turn on the system. I've seen delays of four, two months, three months to just get someone from the utility to basically start up the system. It passing the inspection process, which it sounds like in Australia, it's not like that. And then also the cost for solar panels and equipment, specifically panels, like there are tariffs on most solar panels coming from outside of the US. There's also tariffs on steel as well coming from China. So I think these are some of the reasons why. I also think as you build more and more solar, installers become more efficient and are able to install quicker. And maybe that's another reason too, but I'm not sure because so much solar has been put in Australia that maybe that's one of the reasons as well. But I don't know if that's as good of a reason. The same thing's happening in the U.S. A lot of local installers tend to dominate the market instead of big national players. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities there. I mean, certainly we do have challenges getting connections to the grid from time to time here and do have delays. If it's managed well, it can usually be done. But I think a common theme that I've heard for years and years and years is this complexity of permitting and connection in the U.S. is a big challenge. And I think the other one that I've seen in some of the previous studies that I've looked at was that U.S. installers, I know it's hard to generalize, but one finding that I really saw was the U.S. installers were really focused on the cost of acquisition and they really understood how much it was going to cost to acquire a customer. And they adjusted their revenue and margin expectations to really make sure that they were covering that. Whereas here in Australia, maybe you're a little less focused on that. And it's kind of a simpler business model, I think. And that means that margins are very, very slim here. And of course, having fairly generous rebates and a very attractive proposition for end customers means people just rush at it. And it has a little bit of a gold rush flavor to it from time to time, I have to say. Benoy, so many things that we can keep talking about, but we're going to have to watch the time. So I'm going to jump now to the sort of wind up and the three questions where I'm really trying to find out the the key big lessons that we can learn. So let's shift gears to thinking about the future now and what's coming. Overall, when you look at the US market, and we've touched on disruption, we've talked on the changing wholesale prices, we've touched on competition and the changing economics and everything else. But overall, what do you think is the major market change that you see coming over the next year or two that the US market's going to have to adapt to? Because I'm looking for what we can learn from that change that's coming. The U.S. market, obviously, financing of projects are a big part of any project. So power purchase agreements have been very important. What's happening really quickly is that the term of the agreements are getting less and less. For example, it used to be like 20 years with one off taker. Now we're seeing you know companies comfortable with 10 years contracts. And as time goes on, I'm seeing where companies are owners of solar projects of community solar and utility scale are fine with shorter and shorter contracts with one or multiple parties being companies or residential off takers. And they're getting more comfortable with taking merchant risk. And I think that will allow for like more financing of solar projects going forward as more and more solar asset owners become comfortable with solar as an asset, which they have. And now like less and less restrictions are there when it comes to financing. 
Interesting. Shorter terms, that's been something we've watched over the years as well. And that's always been a barrier, right? So if you can get that down to 10 years or less and de-risk it, then more money comes in, the money gets cheaper, people will sign things quicker, right? So that's an interesting one to watch here. And I think we've started to see that. We certainly don't have the experience that you guys do in the large scale space, although we're chasing quickly there. So that's a cool one. What about at the residential level? What are the lessons you think we could learn apart from perhaps how to make profit? I know traditionally that's been something I've admired the US installation industry for, but what are the trends that you're starting to see? Is EV uptake an intrinsic part of the solar industry now? We've touched on batteries, heat control. What are consumers looking for? Yeah, so I think electric cars is one of the big things that everyone's really talking about in the U.S. and everyone's excited in the residential market because a lot of Americans want electric cars and we're seeing a huge increase in the amount of electric cars that are being bought, that are being manufactured. Biden administration has a goal of 50% electric cars by 2030, which is extremely aggressive if you think about it. Yeah, that's a game changer, right? Well, that's a game changer. And then what's normal, if someone has an electric car and they charge at their home, they're going to want solar. That's just the natural equation. So we believe that it's going to lead to a lot more proliferation of solar. The other thing too, like the new Ford F-150, you basically can use it to charge your home. So people are really excited about that because it just creates another opportunity and option. And we think like electricity generation is going to increase dramatically with all these electricity needs happen going forward. But we think that EVs are going to lead to a huge amount of solar on residential homes as well. So it's kind of like a combined package. They certainly seem to go hand in hand, don't they? Because if you want that low cost energy, and particularly in Australia, if you want the cheapest energy to top up your EV with, then you do that from a home solar system. You don't do it from grid power. You absolutely need solar. So that will be really interesting because the integration and smart control of EV charging from solar is something that you know, everyone's watching with great interest and some great early stuff going on here in Australia and other parts of the world around that intelligent behaviour. So if EVs, it's ironic that it's EVs that are going to drive solar, where it's solar that's driving EVs here, we'll have that crossover point too. All right, we're running out of time, sadly, Benoit, but one last question to wrap it all up. You can be as controversial as you like now. You can say anything you like. Hardly anyone listens. No one's probably listening right now. So what's your crystal ball telling you? You're sitting there, you're a business owner, you're doing consulting, you're in projects, you're watching the market, you're excited about solar, you're talking to lots of people in the industry. If you're sitting back with a couple of cold beers under your belt, thinking, I reckon I know the next big thing that's coming. And if I can be completely controversial, this is what I reckon is going to happen next year that probably no one else would believe me if I said it. What is that prediction, Benoit? What's the secret? That is a really hard question. (laughs) I know this sounds boring though, but one of the challenges that we have like in the US for utility scale projects, if the hosting capacity can't handle the utility scale project, usually the solar project has to pay for that upgrade which I don't actually think is fair because there's a benefit to having these distributed resources on the network. And it's not just purely for the solar company. So uh, part of President Biden's infrastructure plan is to increase, to upgrade the infrastructure of the U.S. as well, electricity infrastructure. And I feel like they are, and I think they potentially might find a way of helping subsidize distributed energy systems going onto the network. So that's not cost prohibitive if there's benefits to the total population or the people in that utility service area. So I don't know if that controversial, though. 
<laughs> I think a lot of people in certain part wouldn't agree with doing that, specifically the utility. Yeah. It's that really interesting balance between is it the network's job to build a grid infrastructure that can handle two-way energy flows at the discretion of people who want to build generators? It's a really interesting question. And I think there's a place for a good debate about how we share that, especially when you consider the shared benefits, as you say, that the community gets. And we've seen that in spades. Wholesale energy prices have dropped dramatically in Australia purely because of the benefits of renewables, despite what our um, (laughs) thick-headed politicians might have told you over the years and have warned how we're going to drive the price up. Well, guess what? We're actually reducing the price. So there's a benefit for everyone. Benoit, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, but sadly, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. Anytime. Thank you for having me. It was great to be on your show. Thanks, Benoit. And friends, that's a wrap for another episode. My name is Nigel Morris. I'm head of business development at Solar Analytics. I hope you picked up some tips on how to build a great solar business and look forward to speaking to you again. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think can benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at reneuenergy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangen and Kevin Y. Brown. <laughs>